everyone. Welcome to our 10th episode in our Suicide Postvention podcast series. My name is Sara Nazem, and I'm a clinical research psychologist here at the Rocky Mountain Myrag. I have the honor of being your host for today's podcast, which will focus on school suicide postvention. Today, we're joined by Stan Collins, a true leader in the suicide prevention field, who, amongst many other areas, is an expert in youth suicide and implementation of suicide practices. Thanks so much for joining us today, Stan. And I was thinking we could start off this podcast by having you share a bit about you and your background. Yeah, thanks so much, sir, for having me on. Um, so, uh, yeah, I've worked in suicide prevention for about 20 years, which uh, um, is kind of interesting because I'm only 37, so I got involved at a, a very young age. But currently, I work as I'm the co-founder of the Directing Change Program and Film Contest, which is a youth mental health and suicide prevention program, but the core of it is a film program. So instead of going into a classroom and talking at youth, we actually invite them to submit films. So this year we just concluded our seventh year of the program. And uh, this year we received over a thousand films to the program from throughout California. And on the back end of the program, we're able to provide a lot of trainings and a lot of support to school districts across the state. And then in another role, I work as a suicide prevention specialist for Know the Signs and Each Mind Matters, which are statewide mental health and suicide prevention campaigns uh, throughout the state of California. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm sure we're going to hear more about um, some of those organizations that you're part of. I also wanted to, to see if um, kind of what brought you into this field, especially because you've been doing it for 20 years and, and kind of where some of that passion has grown from. Yeah, thanks for asking. So, um, yeah, my passion for specifically youth-based suicide prevention and postvention comes from, uh, I grew up in San Diego and my freshman year in high school, I lost one of my good friends to suicide. And me and him had gotten to know each other because our older brothers were best friends and uh, he was a year older than me. And so going into my freshman year in high school, I was really blessed because one of my best friends was a sophomore. And, you know, back in high school, if a kid was older than you, you thought they had the whole world figured out. So <laughs> I just stuck to him and he took me under his wing reluctantly probably, but after a while, um, you know, we became really close friends and I was really lucky because me and him ended up in the same fourth period geometry class together. So every day my freshman year, I could look forward to hanging out with him. Our seats were right next to each other. And then one day I came home from practice and I was walking down the hallway of my house. My older brother came up to me and he had tears in his eyes and, um, you know, it's, one of three or four times in my life that I've seen my brother cry because me and him are very at very different ends of the emotional spectrum. But he came up to me and had these tears. And it was one of those moments in life, even as a 14-year-old boy, that I knew there was a fork in the road. It was one of those moments where time just stand, stood still. And he went on to tell me that my friend had died by suicide. And I remember just the weight of the world hitting me. And I remember collapsing in the hallway and just crying for hours. You know, and for those who have lost someone to suicide, it's anger, it's confusion, it's sadness, it's guilt, and shame. And eventually I made, you know, made my way to bed. And the next morning I was walking out the door and I realized my mom was in the kitchen. And my mom was a, a law enforcement officer. So normally she was long gone by the time I was heading to school. But she stopped and she said, you know, honey, you don't have to, you don't have to go to school today. And I looked at her and I said, no, I, I got to go. I got class. And it wasn't until I walked into that fourth period geometry class later that I realized why I was so determined to go to school that day. And it's because there was still a part of me that thought that maybe this was all a bad dream. You know, I was going to walk into the class and, and 
he was going to be there and life was going to proceed as normal. And instead what happened is that day and every day for the rest of the year, I sat next to my best friend's empty desk. And this was back in the mid nineties. So this was long before we were doing postvention in schools or responding after suicides. And, you know, before we were even really doing prevention in schools. And so, you know, as a 14 year old kid, me and my friends were left to deal with this and just kind of silence, you know, it was just don't talk about it. It didn't happen. There was no outlet. I remember there wasn't one single adult on campus who came to me and said, are you okay? Is there anything we can do? And, and so that obviously was traumatic for me and carried with me. And uh, so that's kind of where the, the heart comes into it. But my passion for the work actually happened a few years later. I was a senior in high school and my father is also a law enforcement officer. And he asked me to come to a presentation from the Yellow Ribbon Suicide Prevention Program and asked if I could come and as a teenager who had lost a friend to suicide, who was involved in peer counseling, could I just give the police department a thumbs up, thumbs down, should they endorse the program? And I was so excited just to go to the presentation because, you know, here's a 17-year-old kid who'd already lost a friend to suicide. It was the first time that I'd ever heard the word prevention attached to the word suicide. And so I went and I went, you know, attended the training and walked away just feeling really empowered and really just impassioned, like, we have to, why aren't we talking about this? You know, my parents talked to me about sex, drugs, rock and roll, all the things that can kill teenagers. And yet no one ever talked to me about suicide. And so I went back to my principal the next day and I handed him a packet of information on the program. I said, we got to, we got to talk about this. And he said, well, give me a couple of days and come back and we'll, you know, we'll see what we can do. And so I came back a few days later and he kind of rolled his eyes and he's like, oh, I didn't expect you to follow up. Come back in a few more days. I got kind of busy. I'll look at the stuff. And so I came back a few days later and I got the same response. And so finally, after weeks and then months, he just, I, I, I kind of whittled him down and I walked into his office one day and he said, look, Stan, you're not going to give this up. You're a good kid. If you think this is something we should do, you go raise the money and we'll make it happen. So I partnered with uh, the Yellow Ribbon chapter in San Diego and we flew Dale and Dar Emmy out, the founders of the Yellow Ribbon Suicide Prevention Program, out to my school. And as we used to do in high schools, and hopefully, and we're trying to talk to schools not to do it in this format anymore, but what we did then was gather all 3,000 students from the school into the gym to have this very intimate conversation about suicide prevention. And um, right before they were about to speak, they looked at me and they said, hey, Stan, have you thought about what you're going to say? And I remember just freezing. My heart just dropped, and I was like, wait, no, this isn't – I brought you guys here. If you build it, they will come. The students are here. You guys are here. You know, do your thing. And um, they looked at me, and they just very, very firmly said, no, we think that you have something to say. And so I remembered that I had written a poem in memory of my friend. And so I reached in my backpack, and I dug out the poem. And so now here I am my senior year, standing in front of 3,000 of my classmates talking about suicide prevention and I'm reading a poem and I'm just mortified, just thinking, man, what did you do? Like how arrogant and naive could you ever have been to think you could make a difference? And I stumble through the presentation and I read my poem and I remember skipping practice that day and just going home and pulling the covers over my head and just thinking like, can today just never have happened? Like that was such a mistake. Like how silly could you be to think you could make a difference? And then the next day I walked onto campus and the attendance lady met me at the front of the school and she handed me a letter. And I remember the words she used. And I'll never forget. She said, Stan, I have a gift for you. And so I opened up the envelope and there was a letter 
from a girl named Sarah. And to this day, I'm still trying to find Sarah. She didn't give me her last name or her last initial, just Sarah. And in the letter, she went on to tell me that she'd been thinking about suicide for a long time. And that yesterday when she showed up at school was the first time that she heard other people say the S word and talk about suicide. And she thanked me for sharing the pain of me losing my friend because up until that point, she had convinced herself that people would be better off without her and that she was a burden in people's lives. And she went on in that letter to tell me that, you know, thank you for sharing your hope that for other people who, you know, are feeling that way, that they might take a different path and might reach out and ask for help and that there might be people out there who would support them. And uh, that poem that I was so embarrassed to read the day before, she told me that she had actually gone to my English teacher and gotten a copy of it and made copies of it. And her and her friends had passed it all around school. And uh, she posted it next to her bed, and she was going to read it every single morning to remind her of her reasons for living. And, you know, that that instance, that moment for me, just it just woke something up in me where I realized that, you know, as a kid with, you know, no experience in mental health, no experience in suicide prevention, just because I was able to or willing to create a space for people to talk about this, to open up about this, I was able to help someone find their reasons for living and it just made me realize and I share that story with people because I think it's very easy to get intimidated, you know, but again, as this young boy with no training, I was able to help somebody find their reasons for living. So I share that story so that people never underestimate the role that they can have in helping someone decide to stay. And so, you know, after that, I just, once I had my eyes open to the issue, I just could never look away. And so I got involved with Yellow Ribbon, volunteered with them all through college and uh, became the, the youth council president. And at 19 years old, they actually uh, set me up and I went back to Washington, D.C. and testified before the United States Senate next uh, alongside Dr. David Jobes and uh, Dr. Uh, David Satcher, uh, who was the Surgeon General at the time. And from there, I just it's just been my life. Wow, I mean, just Sam, thank you so much for sharing that uh, that story, and I think how your passion and perseverance and courage just really shines through in something that we've been talking a lot about in these podcast episodes about how to heal after suicide loss, and and I think your story just beautifully portrays that and, and shows how it's a journey to it; it never ends either. Um, and so thank you so much for sharing that. I think as part of that story, I heard you begin to talk about the connection between suicide postvention and suicide prevention. Um, but for our listeners, I wondered if we could just have you talk a little bit about what suicide postvention is and how it relates to suicide prevention from your point of view and your experiences. Yeah, so postvention refers to the activities or steps that we take to respond after suicide. And, and obviously today we want to focus on school-based suicide prevention. But what we know is that, especially, and again, going you know back from my personal experience, um, you know how traumatic of an experience that is for not just the youth, and I think that's a part that gets missed a lot. It's not just for the youth, it's for the adults on the campus mm-hmm. and for the entire community. And that it's you know, that when we don't talk about suicide openly, when we don't address it, it can really create a combustible situation, you know, where if we try to sweep it under the rug and hide it in the closet, it becomes a very dangerous situation. And I have a saying that goes, when you speak the name of the beast, it will retreat, you know, only by talking openly about suicide. Can we, can we 
turn towards prevention. Mm-hmm. And I used to feel really bad about getting invitations to come into a community and speak after suicide because I would feel like I was kind of capitalizing on a tragedy. And what I've come to realize is that, no, that's when pe- if that's when people are willing to listen and willing to talk about this issue, then that's when we need to. So mm-hmm. in the post-vention phase, um, it, it is an opportunity to, to turn towards prevention. Um, it's an opportunity, you know, for one, we know that um, suicide contagion is real and it is more significant among youth. And so it's an opportunity for us to, um, you know, really raise our antenna out and look at the youth who might be exposed to that or might have had previous experiences with suicide that might be at greater risk now. Um, but I think it's, Although postvention is prevention, I think there's also a little bit of caution about not jumping directly into, um, you know, still keeping the focus on postvention before we really turn into, you know, a full prevention phase. And we can kind of get into that in a little more detail. Yeah, thanks. I think that's really helpful. We've talked about how in our other episodes, workplaces may also feel their draw to kind of switch immediately into that prevention mode, which is it makes a lot of sense, right? Because we want to think about how can we prevent this from happening? We want to take care of one another, whether that be a workplace or a school setting, um, but really stressing the importance of making sure that we have an organized response where we're attending to people's needs in the emotional aftermath before switching those gears. And so along those lines, can you tell us um, some of the best practice recommendations for what suicide postvention should look like in schools? Um, how should a school potentially think about components that they should um, ensure that they have as part of their response following a suicide? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think um, first off, I, I think the most important thing that schools could do to be prepared to respond after a suicide is to do the planning ahead of time. You know, when I conduct trainings on postvention, one of the most important things that I really try to emphasize is, you know, we have to pay attention to this now. We have, we, you don't want to be scrambling during a, a postvention, you know, after a suicide to try to put this all together. And so putting that plan in place ahead of time. And it's interesting in the school setting because sometimes um, the mentality will be like, well, we'll, you know, we'll deal with that when we get to it. Um, but again, for a plan to be effective, it has to be able to be implemented immediately. And uh, one of the hardest parts of, of the work that I do is when I get contacted by a school, you know, days or weeks after there's been a suicide. And oftentimes, you know, when there hasn't been a response, there's been a second incident, whether it's an attempt or whether it's a death. And so I think the most important thing schools can do is plan ahead. And I do an activity in my trainings where I I give the attendees a scenario and we work through the scenario and I just kind of ask them, okay, what, should, what are the steps that we should take and what should we do? And, you know, every time they always, you know, hit all the key points. Um, and then I at the end I say, okay, you hit all the key points, but the difference is, Nobody in this room is traumatized by the event. You know, we're all thinking clearly. We're all thinking level-headed. And so we really need to, again, plan ahead. And, um, you know, when when we think about justification for taking the time to to do a suicide postvention plan in a, you know, say in a district or in a school that hasn't been impacted, you know, one of the metaphors I use is, you know, how many of you have ever been part of a fire drill? You know, and of course, they're all educators, so they've been part of hundreds of fire drills. And I say, okay, how many of you have actually been in a school that's on fire? And maybe one or two people raise their hand. And I say, okay, how many of you have been in a district that's been impacted by suicide? And almost every hand goes up. And so yeah. I use that metaphor as a way to, you know, we don't need to justify 
um, why we're taking time to create a plan for postvention. So, um, but that wasn't really your question, I guess. What you were asking for was what are the the key steps about it. So, do you want me to go a little more in detail on those? Yeah, and I think that was great too. I even jumped the gun because I think it is important to make sure that we're thinking about rationales and sort of the contextual factors that really lay the groundwork for why any post-venture components or plans are necessary. So um, that was fantastic. So I guess, you know, the next question would be even based on these scenarios and schools and districts that you've worked with, what are some of those components that we know should be part of that plan that hopefully people are um, putting together before a death occurs? Yeah, well, there's a a few documents that um, I'd like to reference and then maybe we can link to them on the website later, but, um, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention and Suicide Prevention Resource Center came out with the second edition of the After a Suicide Toolkit for Schools. And so that document is about 60 pages, but a lot of it is reference and appendix materials, um, sample letters and stuff. And so I would encourage people to review that. Also, the SAMHSA Preventing Suicide Toolkit for Schools Chapter 3 is focused specifically on postvention. So taking some time to read through those will really give people um, some tangible tips and again some very you can download PDFs and and put things together but you know it's it's there's kind of short term and long term you know in the short term uh, number one it's you know just taking time to verify the death was it a suicide what information can be shared what information needs to be shared you know another component of postvention that's vital is how are we messaging about suicide how are we mm-hmm. talking about this and so um, understanding what information we know, what information is confirmed, and then being able to provide. Because a lot of times there's so much information twirling around on social media, and a lot of times the youth know or think that they know more about what happened than actually happened. Um, being able to provide accurate information, um, connecting with the family, and seeing where the family's comfort level is. Um, you know, and I, ideally the family will be supportive of talking openly about suicide but we also have to be prepared that the family might be very opposed to having a conversation about suicide, whether for cultural reasons, religious reasons, uh, stigma and shame. And so being prepared to respect the family's wishes. Um, So, you know, starting with the verification of the death, moving into community, you know, working with the family, supporting the family, uh, letting them know about the, the various resources in the community. And so, that's another key step of having a postvention plan in place is knowing what is available inside of your, you know, in, inside of the community, um, not just within the school's walls, um, mm-hmm. but what type of support. You know, there's some great models out there, like the LOST team um, can provide some really good supports to the family. And then, you know, as we, as I do these trainings, one of the things I have them work through is, you know, the simple process. How are you going to notify your staff? How are you going to communicate this to them? Because this is, going to be traumatic news for them so what is your plan you know it's you don't want to send it in an email Um, you know one thing about postvention in the school setting is that you want to remember that everything that you put into writing might get leaked to the media so you want to be very cautious about what information you're sharing there Uh, so a lot of times it starts with you know having an all-staff meeting in the morning you know and getting all your staff in a room so you can have that conversation Um, and, you know, unfortunately, I've, I've been a part of, of many of those staff meetings and um, some of the positive feedback that I've gotten from principals and administrators that I've worked with is 
just standing in front of that room of educators, you know, people who have dedicated their lives to, to, to these youth and to, to helping them and just telling them it's not your fault. This wasn't anybody's yeah. fault. And just, you know, feeling this collective sigh of relief. And, you know, one of the uh, principal that I've, I've had the, the, you know, the experience of working with and responding to a few suicides now, um, you know, I think administrators are always in this mindset of let's get back to normal. Let's get back to academics. Let's get back. And, you know, he said that me pulling him aside and saying, Hey, there is no normal right now. Like we have to take time in this space. He said was really valuable to kind of keep him in check. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so I, um, I, if I can keep going, um, but, uh, you know, then it's, uh, you know, what are we going to do? How are we going to communicate this to the rest of the school? How are we going to notify the students? Um, how are we going to notify the, the te- you know, the, the larger school community? And is it a letter to parents? And what's that letter going to say? And the notification, to, you know, during that all-staff meeting, there's a lot of things you cover. You talk to staff about and normalize their own feelings, their own you know, mix of feelings that are going on in response to this, and then you help prepare them. You give them tools. You uh, give them a statement to read to students, you know, in first period and reminding the students of their resources on campus. You know, oftentimes schools, you know, will create a safe room for, for students to go to throughout the day, so letting them know that that resource is there and where they're located and remind the teachers of the process for referring students out. Um, and then also, again, depending on what, information you're able to share, you know, providing some accurate factual information to the students to kind of squash the rumor mill. And again, this is where it gets kind of tricky because some parents, you know, will say, yeah, talk about it. Some parents will say, don't talk about it. And, um, you know, what do you do if every kid in the school knows that it was a suicide, but the parents are saying, don't say it was a suicide. And so there's some sample letters in those toolkits I referenced earlier, but you know, it's a it's a tricky line to walk where we want to respect the parents' wishes, but we also don't want to endanger the youth that are still here um, because we're scared to talk about it. And so, you know, without confirming the cause of death, we can still talk about suicide prevention and mental health and what resources are available. And then, you know, repeating those announcements through the day and uh, just working through, you know, identifying, helping, asking the, asking the parents, the teachers, the friends, you know, who might be at increased risk for suicide. You know, maybe there's a, a student on campus who didn't know the kid, but they lost a family member to suicide a couple years ago, or maybe they had a suicide attempt themselves. So, you know, what can we do to raise this heightened awareness um, and make sure that we have a, a, a system in place for kind of capturing all these youth? Yeah, that was a great follow-up because I was wondering how to handle that piece of uh, respecting a family's wishes if they prefer to not have the cause of death confirmed. Do you have, I, I know you referenced uh, the couple of documents, which we absolutely will attach to this podcast so people can check out more. Do you have any, just one or two examples of ways in which, let's say, um, teachers could talk about uh, suicide prevention, kind of suicide loss without talking about the cause of death, like I, I could imagine that could be tricky, right? Because you're not um, obviously confirming it, but how do you start those conversations or, or what's the context to be able to bring that up in? Yeah, there's some discussion guides in those toolkits, but I think, um, you know, the kind of to summarize it, what I basically, you know, put into the theme that I put into those those conversations or into those statements is, 
we can't confirm the cause of death. We can't confirm that the student has died. But since everyone is talking about suicide, let's talk about suicide. So you're respecting the yeah. family's wishes by not confirming the death, but you're also opening up a space for youth to have this conversation. So, you know, you're legally respecting the parents' wishes, um, but you're also creating youth, giving youth that space. And I think that's that's really important. And, and I think also um, a lot of times families will not, you know, when they don't want to talk about it, I think a lot of times they, um, we just accept that answer and we say, okay, we're going to, we're just not going to talk about it. But I think it's important to also have a conversation with the family and talk about the potential benefits of being open about suicide and being able mm-hmm. to have a conversation and letting, letting them know, hey, we're really sorry. We understand. We can't imagine how hard this must be for you. But we want to let you know that there are some potential, you know, dangers or benefits, um, you know, by not or by talking openly about it. And so we just like, you you know, here are some considerations. And oftentimes the families, you know, they, didn't, they don't really think about it that way. They don't think about the other youth and how this might impact them. And so just having an open conversation with the family, not trying to push them, but just trying to address their concerns, again, whether it's cultural, religious, um, mm-hmm. and trying to get them to, to be an ally. Because it can, you know, but at the same time, there's also dangers of the other way when the parents are very vocal about suicide because they may not be familiar with safe messaging recommendations. And so mm-hmm. they may be too vocal about some of the wrong things and some of the wrong messages that we don't want to put out there. And so, again, so much of what we do in the postvention phase has to be filtered through this safe messaging lens. You know, we don't want to say things like, well, at least they're, at least they're no longer in pain or at least they're in heaven now because that sends a very dangerous message to other youth who are out there thinking about suicide and say, oh, well, then I get to go to heaven and then I, I won't be in pain anymore. Thanks so much for that uh, added detail because I think this is something that comes up across settings. So we're talking about schools and academic settings today in this episode, but our previous episodes have been about workplaces or perhaps in a hospital or a private practice setting where I think very similar questions come up where um, whether it's a provider or, you know, staff member or something like that, reaching out to the family and if we want to respect the family's wishes and confidentiality, but how to still have these conversations when people are talking about it. So I think that's so helpful both for thinking about schools, but thinking about settings more broadly. And I think as you've described all these intricacies, you can see how important it is to do that pre-planning as you talked about, because these are things that one are just tricky to really plan out and think about. Um, but you absolutely want to be doing them when the emotions are not so activated and the loss hasn't just happened. Because I think there's a lot of thought that goes into each aspect of postvention, especially this piece about notification and how do you get the conversation started. Um, one question I had is I think this comes up a lot. I know I've received this question when I've worked with folks in the community about whether or not uh, suicide prevention or talking about suicide will have an effect in some way on contagion. So I was hoping that you might be able to kind of give a little bit of an overview about um, how to debunk that myth and, and what goes into, again, the safe messaging so that it's actually important to be talking about suicide and, and to not shy away from that for fears of contagion. 
Yeah, well, I think it's, um, you know, contagion is real. Um, It is rare, but it is real. And I think it's all about how we talk about it. It's not whether or not you talk about it, but it's more so how you talk about it. So uh, there's the framework for successful messaging from the National Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention, uh, suicidepreventionmessaging.org. Um, is the shortcut for it, but um, that that provides a lot of tips and a lot of, you know, recommendations for, you know, just how to message about suicide prevention and suicide in general. Um, Dr. Madeline Gould has done, you know, a ton of research and great work in the field as far as dispelling this myth of talking about suicide and, you know, how it doesn't cause it to happen. But again, it all comes back to how we talk about it. How are we framing the issue of suicide? So, you know, for example, a lot of times we, especially in a postvention, we want to simplify the reasons why somebody died by suicide. We want to say that, oh, it was mental health or, oh, it was a breakup or, oh, it was bullying. And in reality, it's very rarely, if ever, just one thing. And I think we as humans want it to be one thing because then we can understand it, right? We can put it in a box mm-hmm. and we can know where it goes on the shelf and that helps us to move on. And I, you know, as a loss survivor myself, um, you know, unfortunately, multiple times over, it's always the why. And I think, okay. you know, it's, it's never, it's never this simple why. And I think exploring that space, I think, uh, you know, as adults, we want to be able to tell youth and explain the world to them and say, this is why something happens. And, you know, being okay with the answer of we don't know, and we will never know. Um, but what we do know is that here are some things that can increase risk about suicide. And here's, you know, when we when we have a lot of trauma in our lives, when we have a lot of stress in our lives, when we have a lack of coping skills and, and just normalizing that at some point, no matter how balanced we are, if, if life keeps stacking bad things on us, we're all going to run out of the capacity to deal with those things. And, and normalizing at that point, help seeking and reaching out for support. And here's where you can go for support. And so I think that's one of the biggest mistakes we do is we try to simplify it and we try to, you know, dangerously try to simplify it. Um, So I think that's, you know, one part of the messaging. I also think it's important not to, you know, give too much information about how someone did it or where they did it, um, not to identify Mm -hmm. the, you know, bring prominence to the location. And this is something that schools do a lot. It's kind of a a good segue into the memorialization because that's a, a big issue on the school campus is how do we deal with memorials of students? And a lot of times, Uh, Students will go to the location or they'll go to the locker or they'll, you know, want to do something on campus to to memorialize the student. And again, it's the same same thing where there are positive and negative ways to do that. So, um, you know, permanent memorials on campus are are not recommended or I I would say far more than that, you know, are very discouraged Mm -hmm. um, because I remember this. I remember after my friend died wanting to plant a tree or put a plaque on the wall or something to to remember him by. And I remember getting shut down about it. And I think I was just shut down because it was the 90s and we weren't talking about suicide. But <laughs> hindsight, um, you know, there was there's value in that and not having yeah. permanent memorials because, again, there's, there's danger because what if another student says, oh, well, they'll plant a tree for me or they'll rename a building for me if I attempt or die by suicide. And so – um, you know, knowing how to deal with those memorials, it's not just say no to all memorials, because at the same time, if we do that, then we're stigmatizing suicide. You know, if you allow a memorial for, not a permanent memorial, but if you allow flowers to be placed in a, in a you know, by the locker for the kid who died in the car accident, you have to allow it 
for the kid who died by suicide. Otherwise, you're stigmatizing it. But, you know, there's simple, tangible steps that schools can take. You know, one of the recommendations is if an impromptu memorial pops up, to, you know, rather than letting it sit there until the end of the school year and, you know, letting the teddy bear disintegrate, it's just put a little plaque up next to wherever this has happened and, and say, hey, students, you know, in a couple weeks on this date, we're going to take these items and we're going to give them to the family. So if there's a, anything mm-hmm. you want to come reclaim, whether it's a picture, whether it's a, uh, a, you know, a letter that you wrote, you know, swing back by before then and, you know, you can have it back. But it's a way of communicating to the students that, hey, we're not just going to take all this stuff and throw it in the trash. Um, and it's mm-hmm. also, a, you know, there's a beautiful sentiment in there of the parents receiving or the family receiving um, these items from these youth. Um, you know, but there's, again, ways to do it properly where if that does happen, you want to make sure your staff is going by and looking at the memorial and checking it out and reading some of the letters. And because, you know, it's it's kind of frightening sometimes because you'll read these letters from the student to the deceased student and they'll say things like, you know, I, I will be with you again soon. What does that mean like soon tomorrow or does that mean soon in 70 years? Um and, you know, being able to check in with the students. And and one school that I worked with, I really liked what they did. They um, actually moved, moved the impromptu memorial into the counseling office. And so the, the kids who were coming in, there was some sort oh, of, a, yeah. you know, kind of, yeah, they were being monitored. So um, there's some very effective ways that we can deal with that response. Yeah, thank you for that. I As you were talking about that, too, and bringing back in this idea of the community and the family and the teachers, um, I just wanted to touch back in a little bit on what your recommendations are for how to take care of staff and the broader community in addition to the students as part of a postvention process. Um, what have you seen that's really effective or um, something that you'd like to advise listeners to think about for a- attending to that aspect of postvention? Well, I think um, <clears throat> there's a few things. One is I think it's, you know, debriefing with your staff throughout the entire process. You know, a lot of times we'll have just one staff meeting at the beginning and then the, the teachers kind of go out into the world and we just wish them the best. And I think number one is continually checking in with your staff, having multiple staff meetings and then having a debrief meeting at the end um, or multiple debrief meetings at the end to kind of check in. Because when I come onto a campus, mm-hmm. the the administration is so focused on the students, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I really have to give them pause and say, I'm also just as worried, if not more worried about your staff. Because ultimately, when you look at the data around suicide, um, youth suicide is still, unfortunately, it happens too much, but it is still fair, fair, you know, fairly rare for a youth to actually die by suicide. You know, attempts and ideation are really prominent among youth, but deaths are, are rare, whereas in the middle age group, that's where we see the highest number of suicides. And so I try to remind them of that, that, you know, we have to take time for your staff. So doing some some self-care activities, the University of Buffalo School of Social Work has a self-care starter kit. And there's some activities from self-care assessment to self-care plan. So taking time to sit down and dedicate time with your staff to have them pause and take care of themselves. But it's also there's some tangible things strategically that you can do to help take care of your staff. You know, oftentimes what happens is after a suicide, the educators want to be there for the youth. And so they rush to the rescue and, you know, we encourage them to take time off, but they say, no, I got to be here for my kids. And then everybody's, 
you know, just going as hard as they can. And then after the, the funeral, the memorial service, oftentimes what you see is that the entire staff at a school just crashes and they're just walking around like zombies. And so, you know, some of the things that you can do to prepare for that is bringing additional support. And this goes back to that idea of having a plan in place ahead of time. You know, what capacity does your district have to bring in outside counselors? What community-based organizations um, have you created an MOU or, a, you know, a contract with to be able to come in and support with crisis response? But there's also some relatively simple things, you know, bringing in extra substitutes. And maybe they're not even going to be in a classroom for the day. Maybe they're just going to be bringing water and tissues around campus. Um, one of the, the suggestions that I really like is that for the teacher who ha actually had the student in their classroom, as they're not going to want to take any time off, right, because they're going to want to support their mm -hmm. kiddos. And so you can bring in what you do is that you, you don't get a substitute for them. You have them identify who is their, you know, their, their best friend or their favorite, you know, teacher on campus, and you get a substitute for that other teacher and then bring that teacher in to co-facilitate the classroom for a few days with the main teacher, the teacher who had the student. And what that does cool. is it allows the teacher, yeah, it's brilliant, right? Um, it allows the teacher to still feel like they're fulfilling their duty to their youth, but it also takes a lot of the pressure off of them. So if they do need to step out, if they do need to compose themselves, if they just get overwhelmed, they, they have that support right there. Um, and then you're still, you know, you're not leaving the other classroom because you have other substitutes in place there. So there's some kind of big picture things you can do, um, like continually checking in, reminding the, the adults on campus and then the community of the resources. Uh, but then there's also some very tangible, simple steps that you can take to support your staff. Yeah, that's great. I think this reminds me of what we've talked about in other episodes as well, thinking about professional caregivers, um, potentially providers who I think share a very similar uh, philosophy of, you know, taking care of those that are part of their occupation. And so I think it's really similar to things we've talked about in other episodes in which we want to be really comprehensive and making sure that our post-vention efforts are targeting all the players that are part of the community and, that, and can be affected by that loss too. So I think that was really helpful to hear both from a philosophical sense of why it's important to make sure we're taking care of teachers in this case, but then also some just really nice practical examples of how to make that work based on the particular school or the particular district or setting too. I'm wondering along those lines and thinking about this being a comprehensive approach and making sure that we're including all those that could be affected by the suicide if you have any recommendations as to whether peers or students could be part of the postvention process, and if so, um, perhaps an example of what that could look like. Yeah, that's a great, because a lot of times you're going to have youth, especially um, the, the youth around that, that individual, their friends um, who are you know, long-term bereaved, impacted by this, um, they're going to come forward and they're going to say, we want to help, what can we do? And a lot of times, again, you know, they're going to want to do a suicide prevention awareness day, or they're going to want to jump right into that world, um, which is, you know, that's encouraging. But for now, there's, you know, there's a few things that we can do. For one, um, what we can do is we can put that group of youth through a gatekeeper training, um, you know, get them to be familiar with warning signs, risk factors, you know, reminding them of the referral process on campus so that we have additional eyes and ears out there on campus. So, you know, taking their energy, but 
focusing it a little more um, and explaining to them why we're not going to do this big assembly, why we're not going to, you know, let's, let's have you be our eyes and ears out there. So that's one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, also, a lot of times they'll want to, and it kind of goes in the, in the vein of memorials where they'll want to, you know, do a fundraiser event to raise awareness for a suicide prevention organization. And although that's wonderful and that's great, uh, there's time for that down the road. For now, let's, if we're going to do something to honor the student um, and you have all these youth who want to do something, uh, let's do a living memorial. Let's say, you know, I live in San Diego, so, you know, there's a lot of kids who are, you know, beach kids and surfing kids. And so let's say the kid was a big surfer. Rather than focusing a fundraiser on the manner in which they died, let's focus a fundraiser on the manner in which they live, which is being at the beach. Let's do Let's organize a beach cleanup or let's raise money for the Surfrider Foundation. And so, you know, shifting the focus of their energies towards who was that person when they lived, you know, because it's so, for lost survivors, we spend so much time uh, remembering that individual by how they died and we don't get enough mm-hmm. time to remember how they lived. And so I think simple things like that, you know, you don't want to just shut down all the youth ideas um, you can tell them to be your eyes and ears out there on campus. You can tell them to be your eyes and ears out there on social media, um, reminding them of the ways to report uh, via the, the social media uh, reporting mechanisms or, you know, coming to coming to campus and asking for help for a student. Yeah, great. And along those lines, um, we've been talking about in other episodes this idea of potentially having a team of individuals that are, Cast or kind of oversee postvention cities across different settings. Is that something that you've seen in school-based suicide postvention, or something that um, places may consider as part of their efforts? Yeah, so you're talking about an adult team to kind of oversee the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So similar, and I'm sure you've talked about this in the other podcast, but kind of this incident command mindset of who's in charge and. Again, this goes back to having a plan in place ahead of time, you know, identifying not just at the district level, but at the individual school site, who's going to have what roles. And um, there's a post-pension checklist that's part of the uh, SAMHSA toolkit. And what's great about it is that it's a fillable PDF. And for each of kind of the 20 steps from all the way from verifying the death through um, working with media and social media, it identifies who's the lead and who's the backup. And it provides a place for any Outside contacts, you know, what's the contact information for that? So I think it's it's vital that, again, we have that team in place and we know who's doing what ahead of time. You know, whose job is it going to be to verify the death? Whose job is it going to be to coordinate the all-staff meetings? Um, and more than likely, you're going to have so much follow-up with youth afterwards that, you know, you're probably going to assign one of your counselors or one of your counseling team to just be the coordinator. They're not even meeting with students. They're just making sure that everybody's getting followed up with. So, it is vital to, as part of your post-pension plan, identify, okay, who's the lead, who's the coordinator, you know, who's going to be um, handling any media inquiries, um, who's going to be handling social media, who's going to, you know, so, uh, yeah, it's vital to assign those team roles ahead of time or at least familiarize people. And it may vary depending on who's on campus that day or, you know, out of town that week. But, yeah, having some sort of an incident command mindset so that we can press the red button and everybody just knows where to go is vital. Yeah, great. I think that's helpful. And it's something that I think is important to just remind listeners because it's um, not a one person or even two or three people um, job. It definitely has to be that 
community approach where people are leaning on one another and kind of assigning those tasks and supporting each other and being flexible with it too, um, especially if um, individuals are trying to achieve a really robust postvention response that it's, it's too much for one person to carry that load that, you know, people working on this together is essential. Well, I think it also goes back to that self-care mentality, you know, um, yeah. to, to be able to share that load, you know, even in the meeting with the parents, you know, that should be done in, in a team of at least two people so that it's not just one individual who's going to the, to the family and having this really traumatic conversation with the family members, um, having that support, that colleague there with you so that you can debrief with each other and that you can, you know, go through that experience and have somebody that can support you. But yeah, sharing the load, making sure you're checking in with your staff, um, and then the other important part is, how, you know, as I was mentioning on that checklist, is having a backup because maybe somebody does have to step away. Um, you know, I, one of the, the principals I worked with in the past, you know, he said it was really hard for him, but his superintendent after about two weeks came to him and basically forced him to take three days off and just said, you are going to take time off. And he said at the time I was so angry at him. And then he said when I was able to come back to campus, I was I was able to be so much more efficient, you know, so, um, you know, spreading the load and knowing who can, being familiar with other people's roles so that if someone does need to step away, they don't feel like they're letting the team down. They're not putting this extra burden because everybody's familiar with what everyone else is doing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, I'm curious, we've talked a lot about the components of a post-sension plan and um, different considerations within that plan. I'm wondering what recommendations you have for potentially a school might be seeing to improve or evaluate their processes. What would you recommend in terms of maybe annually going back to this, maybe some other approach for how we can always be going back and revising, re-updating things as needed? Yeah, well, I think, you know, the recommendation is that a we actually were we were really fortunate in California where we had a law that was passed that required all schools to do suicide to implement suicide prevention policies and procedures, and it was more robust than a lot of other states because many other states uh, just required staff training. Uh, but this this mandate that came down from the state being focused on policies, what it did is it called on the Department of Education to create a model policy. And I fought really hard. I was honored to be part of the team that helped create that policy. And I fought really hard to have the post-vention section be very robust to give yeah. kind of tangible steps and tips. Uh, but in that, the recommendation is that these should be updated annually because staff move, staff change. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a, a quote that I love that says, um, uh, suicide prevention intervention requires constant vigilance. You know, this is something that we have to constantly be focused on and, and constantly looking at. And, um, you know, so looking at it annually, seeing what changes might have happened, what new resources uh, might have come up. Um, and then also, and, uh, oh, it's Hazel Lewis said that. Uh, he was, uh, or, uh, was the creator of the Zuni Life Skills. Um, but, um, you know, being able to, to look at that and realize that suicide prevention is a perishable skill. You know, we have to continually look at this. And that, you know, I also remind schools that by looking, when we look at suicide prevention and mental health, it's kind of a catch-all for a lot of other issues that will come up with youth. So the more vigilant we are with this topic, the more that we're going to, you know, 
reduce delinquencies and tardiness and, you know, academics um, will be improved. So uh, there's a lot of good things. But, yeah, definitely looking at it annually, making sure you have the right people in place, seeing what new resources are there is vital. Well, I was just kind of taking notes here to sum up some amazing, amazing different themes that you've shared with us throughout the episode, you know, starting with your own personal experience of losing your friend and I think really poignantly how you described you know, going back into class and having that empty desk next to you and the ways in which that really affected you and kind of shaped your personal and professional journey. Um, that really helps, I think, our listeners um, understand the impact of talking about suicide loss and just the, the rationale that lays the foundation for everything that you talked about after that in, in terms of planning ahead for postvention plans. Um, with the special considerations of making sure we're including everyone affected by that loss, um, the entire community, and then just some really nice practical examples and those resources that we'll be sharing too as part of the episode in terms of how to go about notification, how to make sure that your messaging is aligned with best practice recommendations, how to handle things like memorializing and and working with students um, who are impacted by the loss but wanting to do more. Um, And I think what you had just talked about there in terms of the vigilance for suicide prevention, including suicide prevention, how that is about suicide, but it's also about a lot of other outcomes and a lot of other ways to think about enhancing well-being um, for our students in this case. I think that is a beautiful example of ways in which sometimes we think that suicide prevention is just about suicide, but as you spoke to earlier, there are so many different factors that go into someone having desire for suicide. And for that reason alone, when we're planning effective prevention and postvention, we're dismantling a lot of those pieces too and helping people think about healing and kind of recovery and resilience. Um, So that's kind of my sum up of things. I could probably keep talking for 10, 15 more minutes about all the amazing things you had talked about. I wanted to turn it back over to you, though, to see if there's anything else you wanted to talk about that we didn't get a chance to check into or anything that you wanted to go back to to highlight as some of your major takeaways for listeners. Um, Yeah, well, one of them is, um, you know, we kind of touched on memorialization, but I think, you know, having – having a plan for how to deal with memorials is really important and having that at at a district level so that Mm -hmm. when a parent comes and says, no, I want to plan it. You know, there was one school that I was working with. um, Then they had this bench where anytime a student died, they would put a plaque on the bench and this was a really old school. So, you know, by the time I was, you know, working with the school, it it was decades old. And so there were plaques all over this bench. And so when I was talking to them about no permanent memorials, they were like, well, what do we do with the bench? And I said, yeah. somebody rent a tractor. Like, let's get rid of this bench. Let's take all the plaques off. We'll send it back to all the families and say, hey, look, we're really sorry we don't do this to offend, but um, we now know, we understand this better, that this can actually increase danger for, for youth by having this type of memorial. So uh, we're, we're getting rid of the bench, but we wanted you to have the plaque back, you know. So, but for having a district policy that says we don't do permanent memorials is really valuable so that when the family comes and says, wait, no, we want our kid's name on the bench, we, you know, they can point to those district protocols. So I think really looking at having robust policies and procedures at the district level so that your counseling teams can point to a document and say, no, this is our district, you know, and knowing that your counseling teams 
um, are going to be backed up by by district, you know, by the school board, by the district. I think that's vital. Um, a lot of times, uh, legal teams in districts or offices of education will say, oh, we don't want to have a robust uh, policy because then if somebody doesn't do something and it said that we would do it, then we're liable. And I always push back on that and I say, look, if you should have done it, whether or not it's written down, you're going to be liable. Yeah. So just write it down and make sure everybody knows. So I think, you know, big picture is having a robust policy. But then step two of that is getting it down to all the levels. You know, a lot of times districts will create these great processes and do a ton of work, but then they won't get it down to the to the average math teacher or to the coaches or to the food service workers and making sure that everybody, you know, and obviously I'm biased, but everybody who steps foot on that campus understands that suicide prevention is part of their job and that everybody knows the referral process and everybody knows what is expected of them. Um, so I think those, those are key, you know, kind of big picture components, but uh, there were a few things that I think, um, when I do my trainings, I get a lot of positive feedback because there's a lot of kind of intricacies about how to deal with specific situations. And one thing I always remind folks is that, yes, there's some wonderful toolkits out there, but sometimes not everything is going to be in a toolkit. And sometimes what you have to do is get a group of passionate, smart people in a room and examine how you're going to deal with this one issue and then figure out, you know, appoint somebody to be the devil's advocate and say, okay, how can this go wrong? For example, we had a, uh, a school that wanted to uh, paint some boulders where the student had died um, in, in memory of them and just, you know, seemed like a great idea. It seemed like a way to recognize the student, but at the same time, it kind of creates a magnet to that location. And so uh, realizing that not everything's going to be in a toolkit, but if you're coming from a place in compassion and empathy and understanding that you're going to end up in the right place. But... Mm -hmm. Uh, not to get too long-winded, just a few practical suggestions that I think can be really valuable. One is, you know, what do you, so going back to my story, what do you do with the empty seat? You know, how do you handle that? A lot of schools are confused, and so <clears throat> there's a few ways that you can deal with it. You don't want to just get rid of the seat the next day because you want to allow that time for process, um, but after a couple weeks, you know, reorganize the seating chart, and not just, you know, different butts and different seats, but, you know, mm -hmm. If you're theater style, move to circle style. Um, you know, really rearrange, give a new vibe. I, I've even heard stories of teachers coming in over the weekend after, you know, after a few weeks have passed and redecorating the room for the teachers. So repainting the room, putting new pictures up, putting some paintings on the wall so that it can kind of be like this moment of, okay, now we're ready to move on. You know, they won't be forgotten, but um, changing the vibe in the room. Um, also, um, having a lot of times count schools will have a counselor go in to kind of shadow the, the deceased student schedule for, you know, they'll pop into first period and second period and introduce themselves and, you know, say, if you need anything, let us know. Uh, but I really encourage, if you have the people power to be able to, is really have that counselor sit in that classroom for a few days. Because day one, it's just going to be a mess and it's just going to be trauma. Um, but day two, day three is when you're going to start to see which kids are sinking and which kids are swimming. Um, so having that, you know, that presence in the classroom is really important. Um, I think another mistake that um, schools do is that when something like this happens, they want to just get all the resources out to the community. But if you've ever tried to look for a mental health professional on your insurance website, you know that when you have too many resources, you actually have no resources. Um, so right. keeping it consistent, you know, identifying what are going to be our two or three 
resources that we're going to provide in every communication. So in our letter to parents, in our statements to students, in our newsletter, you know, being consistent with the resources. Um, I think that's really important. And then from a respect for the family, there's two key things that I think are vital. Um, number one is removing the student from the attendance system because I've talked to so many parents and they mm -hmm. talk about how traumatic it was for days and sometimes for weeks to get that absentee call from the school after their child has died and just how, and it just breaks my heart to think about the parent getting that call and reminding them of their student no longer being there. So, you know, that is somebody in that first meeting needs to be identified. Okay, your job is to remove them from the absentee system. And kind of second to that would also be to any state testing or anything that's been submitted, um, you know, maybe it, maybe it was a senior and they were applying to college, um, reaching out to any entities, whether it's state testing or whether it's a university, and figuring out how can the school receive those notices if possible so that, again, mm -hmm. you know, six months later the parent doesn't go to the mailbox and they're getting a letter about their child and it just brings them back to day one. So I think there's some simple steps that schools can do to kind of as best we can isolate the families from, from additional trauma. Oh, fantastic. I think, yeah, in just a couple minutes there, you added, you know, at least 10 to 15 other kind of aspects to touch into. I think one thing I'm curious about, I know throughout the episode, you've referenced different resources that exist. And um, like we both said that those will be attached to this podcast so our listeners can check out more. Are there any other resources or websites, organizations that you haven't specifically mentioned yet that you think would be especially helpful for schools or districts that are looking to get started? Well, we talked about the AFSP SPRC toolkit um, after suicide. Uh, we talked about SAMHSA's toolkit. Um, we talked about the website for messaging. So um, those are kind of my key ones, but and I'm sure I could probably go on all day about additional resources. Um, for what it's worth, I'd actually encourage people to visit uh, my organization's website, directingchangeca.org, and uh, we have compiled all of these resources on our four. There's a four schools tab, so anything that I'm forgetting right now, uh, people can go to our website. We're kind of in a position where we can just kind of be a clearinghouse, an unbiased clearinghouse, mm -hmm. and list. So we have resources for, for postvention, intervention, prevention. We have a listing of a variety of programs um, when schools are ready to go back into a, or, you know, if they're ready now for prevention. Um, also, uh, those films that I mentioned earlier at the top of the podcast was uh, mm -hmm. are these youth-created films. We, we've, you know, this year we got over a 1,000 films. Each year we get, you know, almost that many films. So on that website, you can also download and uh, view those videos for free. So if you're looking at doing some awareness on your campus or in your community. There are 60-second films. They're uh, very diverse. We have a category called Through the Lens of Culture, so there's films in languages other than English. There's films that focus on specific cultures. Um, so I would encourage people to check out our website. Again, you'll find a listing of all the resources we talked about and then some, uh, but you'll also get access to these amazing youth-created films that really speak from the youth voice about how they view the topics of mental health and suicide prevention. Oh, fantastic. And thanks for you and your organization for putting that together. That is absolutely something that's tough because there are a good number of resources out there, but it's hard to kind of canvas all of that. So that sounds like an amazing resource for our listeners to kind of go to as a first stop and then kind of branch off from there to learn more. Great. 
All right. Well, thank you so much, Dan, for joining us today. This has just been a fantastic episode. I know that I've learned a lot um, kind of listening to you and, and taking notes. And I know that our listeners will um, experience the same too. And, and just thank you so much for the, your efforts in the field, what you talked about today, which I think really in, underscores how suicide prevention is key to a comprehensive um, or suicide postvention is key to a comprehensive suicide prevention approach. Um, and all of the things that you talked about, how they're each so instrumental to helping lost survivors heal after a suicide. So thank you again for joining us today. Oh, it's been my pleasure. It's been uh, an honor to speak with you, and uh, I hope we were, I was able to provide some, some knowledge to folks. And if I could just say one thing in parting, anybody listening, it's um, you are more qualified to do this than you think you are. Um, again, trust your instincts, trust your gut. Um, and lean on the resources and also know your own limits and know when you need to step away. And just uh, for any educators out there, I think you are the chosen people. So uh, thanks for what you do every day. Terrific. That's a beautiful way to close out this episode. And for our listeners who are interested in hearing more about suicide postvention, I encourage you to check out some of our other episodes. But thanks again, Stan, and we'll catch you all next time. Thanks so much. This podcast is brought to you by Uniting for Suicide Postvention, USPV, in collaboration with the American Association of Suicidology Clinical Survivor Task Force. USPV offers suicide postvention resources designed for family, friends, acquaintances, employees, supervisors, managers, and professional caregivers, including mental and medical health providers. USPV is funded by the Veterans Health Administration Office of Mental Health and Suicide Prevention. Thank you for listening and be sure to check out our other episodes in this Suicide Postvention series.